Everybody, this is Catherine Singleton. She's going to read. Don't cheer too hard because we haven't read it yet. Fun one this morning, huh? Yes. <laughs> yes this is from is. Acts 5. Uh, and then after she reads, I will pray. And then you, everybody can have a seat. And here we go. Great. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said." That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I just ask right now, uh, Holy Spirit, would you guard this place? Would you guard the hearts and minds in this room, Lord? Um, I know the enemy uh, would not want what we're about to talk about to be talked about. Um, Yeah, and so I pray that you'd help us only hear uh, what you want us to hear and protect us from anything else, uh, but lead us into the truth, even if it's a hard truth. Uh, we love you. In your name, amen. All right, so we've been, uh, we've been journeying through, I guess I don't need to move that, through the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, the life of the early church uh, this fall, uh, which... Jeremy's been preaching through these, uh, these chapters and acts where we see this spirit transformed. You'd really say spirit birth. This is the birth of the church, right? Spirit-led bunch of people that at this point, right up until what we just read, were boldly, they've been boldly testifying, bearing witness, I think is the, the series title for this. They were uh, bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus and all the implications of the resurrection of Jesus, right? God was going public, making his grace and his mercy and his love and his transformative work public through this group of people. And their lives were being radically rearranged, right? Communally, socially, materially, right? Their material goods, right? Uh, They were radically having their hearts and everything in their life rearranged, so much so that the world around them, the Roman world around them really didn't get it. It was like, what is going on with this community of people? especially because nobody had needs if you were a part of this community. This was a community that was marked by remarkable social concern. 
So a lot of care being given, people were being brought into the community, people were coming to faith, being saved uh, in this community. And Luke in Acts 4, right before this passage, attributes all that's going on in this community, everything. This is not just a bunch of good people who happen to find one another and start something together, right? You know, just good moral folk, right? Luke says this, this is all to be attributed to the grace of God at work in their lives. God is doing something in this group of people. And this is the fruit of it. Acts 4.33, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. It was such a powerful work of God's grace that there were no needy persons among them. So everything that's going on in this community is, is just a giant spotlight on the glory of God, who God is, what God does when he comes in and he redeems and captures the heart of his people. Dun, 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 Acts 5, right? Acts 5 signifies a shift in the book, in Luke's book, right? Here's the shift, all that glitters, right? You've heard it said, all that glitters isn't what? Gold, right? Made me think of Stephen Pressfield's book, um, the, the War of Art. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's a good book, powerful. All about resistance. When something good is starting, that resistance, I don't think he's a believer, but he uses the term resistance. We know resistance has a name. We're going to get into that name, the name of Satan, right? Resistance is always there. Here's what Pressfield says. Resistance is a protein. It will assume any form if that's what it takes to deceive you. It will pledge anything to get a deal and then double cross you as soon as your back is turned. Right? All the glitters isn't gold. There's resistance. When the Spirit's at work, especially when the Holy Spirit's at work, there's going to be resistance. Jeremy's talked about some of the resistance that's come from the outside, right? From Pharisees, Sadducees, basically the religious established quo. They did not want this upstart church thing to happen. We kind of like things the way they are. So there's been outside resistance, but this is about the inside resistance. The truth is, is that most meltdowns, this is true about churches too today. It's certainly true about relationships. Most things don't fall apart because of resistance from the outside. They break apart because of something from the inside that goes rotten, right? Paul talks about that in Romans 7, where he says, the good that I want to do, what evil is right there with me, that there's this battle going on. So this is the first kind of picture of the inside battle that's going on in the church. We've seen the outside battle. Now we're starting to see the way that Satan wants to work to destroy the church from the inside out. So three things we're going to cover. Point one's kind of got two points in it. I haven't preached in like four weeks, so there could have been like six points. <laughs> Three things we see in this passage. Point one is an A and a B, the anatomy of sin and the strategy of sin, okay? Point two, the gravity of sin. And then thirdly, seized by the right fear. The anatomy of sin and the strategy of sin. Secondly, the gravity of sin. And then thirdly, seized by the right fear. Buckle your chin straps. Here we go. The anatomy of sin, which is really the kind of getting at the heart of the matter. So I want to start with a little bit of an admission. If you've sat in this passage, if you're part of a small group, my small group sat in this passage together, right? We observed uh, the guideline of silence after it was read. Uh, <laughs> it was just kind of like, whoa, 
Like, this is, this is harsh, right? Like, what? this doesn't seem congruent with all this, you know, kind of love and how the Lord's working and grace and forgiveness, right? Like, what's going on? Um, you know, I was joking with myself and with Jeremy, like, man, dude, come on. You get, like, all the inspirational stuff, and I drew the, uh, the short straw of lying and dying, right, <laughs> to God. <laughs> Hopefully this isn't my future. Uh, but it's a tough passage all around, and I just want to say this to kind of contextualize things. This passage raises a ton of questions. Uh, they are not all answered here in the text. And I certainly am not going to be able to answer all of them uh, in one sermon. Uh, but I'm going to try uh, to stay true to the text and to the context, right? Because there's a lot of speculating that we could do, and a lot of commentators speculated about a lot of different things about this passage. I'm going to try to stay true to the text and to the context of where this is at, not only in the book of Acts, but also within the context of the Bible. Just principally, I'd encourage you guys to think this, that when something's very hard to understand, especially when it's a standalone passage like this, we've got to use other parts of Scripture to understand this part of Scripture. All right? So we'll do some of that this morning. We've got to go to other passages that are more clear, and we also have to understand this, that this is not just a standalone story. This is a story within a larger story of what God is doing in this community, and that is a larger story within the story of the Bible, right? From Genesis to Revelation. This is a story that finds only its understanding within that context. So compare and contrast it to what Jeremy was preaching on last week in Acts 4, where we got this picture into Barnabas and this grace-filled community where everybody was, was selling things and giving things away, right? These, these things are juxtaposed against one another. A lot of people wouldn't preach last week's sermon. I don't know why we outlined it this way. Last week's sermon and this week's sermon, they're kind of together. They're to be compared and contrasted with one another. Because on the surface, this really just looks like two people who made a generous donation, right, to the needs of the community. And because they didn't give it all, right, they get called out publicly for it and they die, You lie, you die. You don't give enough, you die. Is that it? That's it. Let's pray. I'm kidding. <laughs> Please tell me that's not it. That's not it. Remember what's going on, context, what's going on at the church at the time. Beginning in Acts 2, since Pentecost, and since the giving of the Holy Spirit, there was a spirit-empowered, grace-fueled movement in the church that was going on. This is the first time even in the New Testament where the word the church appears, right? When it says that the church was seized by great fear. So this is the first time that we're actually getting a glimpse into uh, this church, right? And a part of that grace-powered movement was is that from time to time, people were taking things, presumably land, they were selling those things and they were bringing the money and they were laying those things at the apostles' feet to distribute to needs as they saw fit. So this account comes on the heels of that picture of generosity in the church. And we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, right? And we have to presume, I think we can safely presume, to some degree that they're a part of this community, whether they're new to this community, whether they've been around for a long time, whether they're new believers, we don't know. Some people would even argue they weren't believers. But they clearly were somewhat familiar with the community 
And they'd had conversations about what was going on, right? They made a decision to sell some property. But, right, in giving it to the apostles, what they did, and this is the anatomy of it, the heart of it, what they did is they made it look like they were giving more money than they actually were. Okay? Another way of saying that is this. They were selling something other than their property. And what it was, was they were selling an image of being more generous than they truly were. That was the lie. That was the deceit in it. That was the hypocrisy in it. They were selling an image of being more generous than they truly were. They weren't just keeping money for themselves, which Peter later says that wouldn't have been a big deal, right? They weren't just keeping money for themselves. They were taking, they were stealing glory from the Holy Spirit's work in this community is what they were doing. Let me explain that. Others, like Barnabas, talked about last week, they freely, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they freely sold their property and they freely gave it all, laid it all at the apostles' feet, even though they didn't have to, right? That's what Peter argues. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could have chosen to do whatever you wanted to do with it. People like Barnabas, the Holy Spirit was saying, you're free to give it all, and they gave it all. Others gave it all, even though they didn't have to, as a response to the work of the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira lied, not only to the community, but to God by feigning that spirit, faking that spirit. That the spirit was leading them to be generous when they weren't being generous, right? They were actually found out as trying to take something from their gift not give something in their gift. And what they were trying to take was undue glory, which is pride, all right? So this is a perfect sermon for me because this is a classic what? I did it for you, for me. Yes, it was on my cakes. Thank you for my cakes. Some of you are like, I didn't stay to eat cake. You should have stayed to eat cake the other week. I did it for you, for me. I believe this is the heart of the sin that they were committing and why it was so serious to the Lord. It wasn't, if you think this is about money or tithing, you're crazy. It, it wasn't about money. God doesn't need your money. God's got a cattle, you know, the, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It wasn't about them not giving enough money. It was about they were taking something in the giving of their money that wasn't theirs to take and it was glory. That they weren't as fervent and they weren't as generous as they were portraying themselves to be. They weren't as fervent and as generous as the Holy Spirit is. You see it? And their motivation and their heart was exposed as being a fraud. They were living in a lie. And not just lying about the amount of money, they were lying about themselves to the community, right? They were ultimately bearing false witness like in the 10 commandments, right? In Exodus 20, they were bearing false witness, which in the 10 commandments is said, do not bear false witness about your neighbor, but they were bearing false witness about someone closer than a neighbor. They were bearing false witness about the Holy Spirit, right? 
And if you know anything about the 10 commandments, you don't break commandment two through 10 without breaking commandment one first, right? And what is commandment one? It's having something else other than God ahead of God in my life, right? The preamble to the 10 commandments. And God spoke all of these things. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So way before they committed the sin of false witness, they had something ahead of God, which was them. That's why it says, what? Pride comes before the fall or pride comes before the false testimony. You see what I did there, right? You know, the irony of this is that Ananias' name is God has graciously given the one whom God has favored. What's the preamble to the, to the Ten Commandments? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who has favored you. I am the one. That is your name, Ananias. You're betraying your very identity by what you're doing in this lie. So that's the anatomy. What about the strategy? Whew, my goodness. The strategy of sin. How sin works in us. Let's, let's go back to the text for a second. So they come with full knowledge. They give some of the money. They keep some back for themselves. Verse three, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that sin or that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Now, how did Peter know this? I mean, the, the apostles were doing many signs and wonders and most of those things, we think of those things as like the good things, right? Like healing people and all this. But I would honestly argue, I mean, we don't really fully know, but basically God is doing a lot of things right now that are revealing things that are bigger than what's happening in the moment. Like part of what's so hard about Ananias and Sapphira for us is we think only individualistically. They did something, they, pay, they paid for it, right? But this is bigger than them. The impact of this, we'll get at this in the gravity of sin. The impact of this is not just on them, it's on the community, right? So how Peter had super knowledge, supernatural knowledge of this, we don't necessarily know. I like to believe that maybe they played cards together on the weekends, right? And then Ananias was kind of known for doing this, but we don't know that. Anyways, regardless, Peter goes straight to the point and he says this question, this is kind of haunting me. How has Satan filled your heart? Like that word filled is the same word that's used in Acts 2 when it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. How has Satan filled your heart? Weren't they believers? Like, can that happen? Right? Why does Peter describe it that way? Well, here, here's a simple way of saying this. If the Holy Spirit has moved into your life, he will not bunk with Satan. He won't share a room, Right? And so Peter, I think, is saying that because he understands something, that lies, that resistance, right? Lying has a name. Deceit has a name, and it's Satan, right? That all lies are ultimately the root of an original lie that we believed. That's why Satan is called the father of lies in John 8. Jesus says this to another group of religious elites, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. He's the father of them, right? 
Think about even our own parents when our parents have said words and they've stuck in us and defined our lives, right? He's the father of lies. He's the OG of lying, the original gangster, right? So we inherit this. It's a part of our flesh. It's a part of our fallen self, right? It's part of the fall. And if you're a believer this morning, you do not belong to your father, the devil, but just because you don't belong to him does not mean you cannot be used by him, right? We can be deceived by sin, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's what Ephesians 6 is about when it says you gotta armor up because you're in a battle still. You have tools to fight, but just because you don't belong to him doesn't mean you can't be used by him, right? And I think Peter understands this. Here's why. Peter's been called Satan by Jesus, right? Once before. So I guess if you've been called Satan by Jesus, you get to call Satan out in other people. <laughs> I think it's a safe bet, right? My mom used to say, it takes one to know one, David, <laughs> right? It's true though. I mean, we're really good at judging other people. I, I don't know. Peter might've been surprised at what happened when he fell dead. Like, oh, I was just trying to point something out here, you know? <laughs> I, I, you don't. But when I see something so clearly in someone else, it's because it's in me. That's why I see it. But oftentimes we weaponize that, right? To point it out in everybody else rather than go, hey, I wonder why I see that so clearly. Peter has a sensitive sniffer to sin and Satan's self-deception and he knows that is the modus operandi of the flesh. And he knows something about lies. And this lie in particular, because this lie in particular is what? It's image elevating, it's image boasting, rooted in pride, aimed at stealing glory. Peter knows something about that lie, and that lie is like a mushroom. And a mushroom in the dark, what does it do? It grows other mushrooms. And these are not the good kind of mushrooms. Not that I know anything about good kind of mushrooms. <laughs> Y'all think I got a problem now. I don't have a problem. <laughs> I got problems. Not that one. Mushrooms grow best in the dark and they multiply. And that is why Peter is bringing it into the light. Because that's what Jesus did in love for him. I'm going to bring that lie that you're believing about yourself, Peter. You prideful I'm gonna, I'll be the one to go to the cross. You don't even have to go to the cross. Jesus, I'll go, right? Peter brought that into, or Jesus brought that into life for Peter because that's what Jesus had done for him. How, how, does, how does the enemy do it? I, I, this feels really dangerous to talk about, honestly. All, it feels like talking about a magician's tricks. How does Satan, if you're a believer, still, still get a hold of your heart, Right? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Go down two verses. What made you think of doing such a thing? Now, I'd encourage you, I can't talk about this for a whole long time because I'd have to talk about Inception, which I love talking about, the film, but that's how it works. All right? Satan incepts. He has from the beginning. He plants a seed of an idea. That's what he does with his questions to Adam and Eve. Eve. <laughs> And what does a seed become? 
A seed becomes a weed, and a weed grows into a hackberry tree. And what do hackberry trees do? They fall on your car or someone else's house, right? They destroy is what they do. And Peter knows this. And Peter, I presume by the work of the Holy Spirit, nips this in a bud. So here's how all I just challenge you with in this point of the sermon. Who checks what you're thinking? Because he talked about it with his wife, but nobody else. Do you have anybody else in your life who looks at your life and says, I think you might be living a lie or perpetuating a lie? Let me, let me bring you out into the truth. What about the word? What's the relationship to the word? Because that's what the word does, right? It exposes, shines a light on places. Because let me tell you, I feel for these two because I'm as self-deceived as Ananias and Sapphira are. But I really believe I'm, I'm better than I am. All right, anatomy of sin, strategy of sin. Two, last two, we'll have to go much more quickly. The gravity of sin. And I would I put this in this, the communal impact of sin. I think this is why the, the, the divine swift nature of the judgment was so quick is this, that if I don't deal with my sin, everyone else in my life has to deal with my sin. Okay? My sin has a bigger radius and impact than just me or just my family. I've got a mole problem in my yard. You know how small a mole is? How, who has mole problems in their yard? Yes. Okay, I've got a guy to call you, but he's going to take a lot of your money. <laughs> he's taking a lot of my money. My yard literally looks like I've got 1,000 moles in my yard. Guess how many moles I have in my yard? Yeah, like two or three, maybe. That's the idea. I, I think it's just one little thing, and yet it's destroying so much, Right? If I don't deal with my sin, if I don't deal with the mole of my sin, it has a bigger impact than just my little territory. And that's what's going on right now in the church, right? How old is the church at this point? Months? When you guys have new babies, what? you don't even take them out into public. Why? Because they're fragile, they're susceptible, their immune system isn't built up yet, right? This is a young, fragile, spirit-born community. The Holy Spirit's doing something here and that's immediately about to be compromised from the inside by a member of the community. And the consequences of that, they're bigger than just what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The consequences of allowing that to continue, we're gonna ripple through the entire church. And that's a pattern that isn't just happening here. Go back to, you can go read in Joshua 7. Achan did this when the Israelites crossed over into the promised land, told not to do something. Kept something for himself, hid and buried it. But you can go all the way back to the garden. I would go read this and then go read the garden account. Man and a woman, husband and wife, conspiring, believing a lie, trying to get some glory that wasn't theirs to get, trying to be like God. There was a, there's a gravity to this because there's a communal impact to this. And so this was a warning. This is why everybody was seized with such great fear. This is a warning to the community because this was a public sin and a public moment. You cannot practice untruth in small amounts and keep it there. I mean, it's so easy to read this and be like, seriously, this is not that big of a deal. Like they gave away like 90% of it probably. What's the big deal? 
Well, it wasn't about the money, right? It was about the deceit in the heart. And you can't practice that in small amounts and keep it there. If you practice untruth in small amounts, you will practice it in large amounts eventually. And it will begin not to just infect your whole self, it will infect the entire community. I mean, if you read it and just follow it, you, you get the idea that Ananias had this idea first and then with his wife's full knowledge, he did something. You see it? Him, then he brings his wife into it. What if it gets bigger than that? Lies become conspiracy amongst a few and then they become conspiracy amongst many, right? So this is a huge moment because the weight of their sin was gonna impact the community. We also see too, though, that this is a kingdom value, that integrity and honesty, right, truth, have a huge high value in the economy of the kingdom because this was a life and death situation. I know it seems extreme, but I would encourage you just think about it in your own lives, right? That if this truly was a sign and wonder, because signs point to something other than themselves, what would this be if this were a sign? Not just a individual situation between Ananias, Sapphira, and God. And here's the sign. Lies kill. Lies lead to death. Lies destroy relationships, destroy community, don't they? Think in your own life when you've lied to somebody. Just, there, there are single lies that define relationships and people never recover from because you weren't honest with me about that, right? Lies destroy. If you don't believe me, believe Jim Carrey, right? Liar, liar. His whole, go watch that movie. I watched a little bit of it the other night. I'm like, dang, this is funny. <laughs> but what was the whole thing? I mean, his whole thing was what? His whole facade was propped up on lies. And what was happening? It was destroying his most key relationships with his wife and with his child. Why? Because relationships are built and sustained by truth. I mean, that was true in my home growing up. I had made a ton of mistakes growing up. You know about many of them, but there are more, right? But the thing my parents never would tolerate was lying. Why? Why was that so serious? I could do something wrong, but if I lied about it, it became not about the thing I did wrong, but about the very foundation of the relationship. If I can't believe you on this, how can I believe you on anything, right? Lies kill and they have since the garden. And what was the garden? Where communion, that was the first creation. This is God recreating. He's starting his new creation. Behold, I'm making everything new and I'm starting with humankind that broke everything. That's what's going on in Acts. In the garden, communion with God was destroyed by believing a lie and living into a lie. That beautiful community was destroyed by a lie born of pride aimed at stealing glory. And Ananias and Sapphira don't see how their lie is following suit. Threatening to destroy the spiritual fabric and the unity of this fragile young community that the Holy Spirit is birthed and the Lord's saying, not this time, Satan. Not again. You don't get a redo on this. That's the anatomy of sin. That's the strategy of sin. That's the gravity of sin. You just write down Proverbs 6, 
16 through 19. Go read that if you want to study more on this. It's six things that the Lord hates and Ananias and Sapphira hit them all. Lastly, seized by the right fear. So this goes down, right? Understandably so. Let's bury him quick. Holy cow, everybody's freaked out. Why were, why were they afraid? Because uh, it says great fear, right? Like mega fear, right? Like, do you think everybody else in the community was kind of like, hey, are you feeling okay? <laughs> like kind of a quick, like, uh, hey, honey, uh, did we actually, you know? I mean, that's, I read that, I was like, geez. You know, I could see myself doing that. Am I next? I know I, I had this sense of, uh, I'm afraid that God is actually more serious about my sin than I am, which the cross should solve that for us. You know, he obviously is more serious about it than we are and he sent his own son. So here's, here's how I'm gonna talk about this. What, what am I afraid of in this passage? What great fear seized me, Dave Burden? I don't know what all their fears were, but I know mine. Here's the mega fear that arose in me and why it's been so personally challenging to me is because I can relate to Ananias and Sapphira pretty well, and here's how. I want people to think a certain way about me as well. And I often, even if just in the slightest ways, promote a view of me that is different, then it's true. I inflate. I exaggerate. I leave things out. Why? I want you to think I'm better than I know I am. That's why. Because if you saw the real me, we might both drop dead, is what I'm really afraid of. So that fear which is a fear that goes all the way back to the garden, y'all. What was that fear? You don't have enough. You're not enough. As you were created by God in his image, not enough. That fear of not being enough. Ananias and Sapphira, well, I'm, I, this is what everybody's pumped about. People like Barnabas, maybe I'm just not enough. I need to show that I'm more than I am. Fear of not being enough. Being afraid of being exposed for the real thing that I am keeps me in hiding, keeps me spinning the lie when the invitation is to drop the lie and come into the light, right? I share their fear. They, they were afraid of the wrong thing, which is what led them to this. And we see the shift to being afraid of the right thing in this passage, right? The fear of what others think of me, establishing what I think of me, being my peace, being my sense of confidence, being my rightness, being my identity, that shift happens here to where they fear the Lord again. Which fearing the Lord is ultimately seeing myself rightly through his eyes, which is what? One who is loved, not because of my enoughness, not because I gave enough money, because I did it right every time. We are not loved because we gave it all. We are loved because Jesus gave it all. My pride doesn't want to be loved for that reason. I want to be loved because of what I did. Right? They drop, this community drops this 
potential trajectory of fearing the wrong things for fear of the Lord. And all fear is not a bad thing. It's fearing the wrong thing that's a bad thing, right? Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see the Holy Spirit fighting you would fear me in this moment because I'm doing something here. So here's what we're going to do to end the sermon. You guys ready? Everybody's like, seriously. Band, come on. I'm going to give us an opportunity for some confession and then they're going to lead us in a time of worship. One of the uh, people in my small group made this observation, um, which I thought was really great. When Sapphira came, Peter gave her a chance. It's hard to see this as a window of grace, but it really is. About three hours later, she didn't know what has happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? I kind of want to imagine Peter going like, tell me, like, a wink, wink. <laughs> you don't know what happened to your husband, right? Is this the price? And she said, yes, this is the price. Scripture says that it's in repentance and rest that is our salvation. There is no rest without repentance. Okay? So he gives her a chance to repent, to decouple herself from the lie. Right? And she doesn't. She keeps the lie going. So here's the invitation. Um, and it's the same invitation that Peter offered Sapphira. Would you come into the light? Would you ask God, show me the places in my life where I'm still living uh, in the fear of the wrong things, where I'm maybe being un, untruthful in, in relationships and it's destroying something, right? That I would be free from that lie, right? And instead of living in my false goodness that I'm, I'm spinning for the world, keeping the lie going, that I would actually step into the goodness of God's grace to me. Right? Okay. I'm gonna pray for us. Lord, lead us now uh, in this time of confession. Um, Father, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, um, I thank you uh, and ask you um, that you would be gentle with us as you reveal things. Um, I know there are times when I, you show me my sin so clearly that I wish I would die. Um, thank you that you, you've paid for all of that past, present, and future, not so we can bury it and hide it, but so we can live in the light of your grace and your truth. We love you. In your name, amen.